Believe it or not, there are more than 4,000 religions in this world. People have been trying to find purpose through anything from worshipping a motorbike to praying with spiritual energy batteries. Realists are expecting the return of our mother aliens in the year 2025. Panawaves live in fear of electromagnetic waves, attributing them to the sudden appearance of an arctic seal in the Tokyo River. There's even a religion that believes in an intangible force that binds the earth together with a light and a dark side. It's Jediism. There's an actual religion around Jediism. This is just a glance at some of the wildest beliefs we could find, but there's more than 3,995 more out there. Believe it or not. So today, let's talk about world religions. I want to thank everybody for being here today. Everybody joining us at home and on the stream. We're thankful for you as well. World religions, when it gets right down to it, do they all say the same thing or not? Well, I thought we'd start off our time together by playing a little game. I'm going to put a picture up on the ox wall right here, also on the screens at your televisions at home. And I want you to see the differences between the two pictures. So you kind of eye spy with your little eye what you think the differences are. You don't have to play by yourself. You can play with the person that came with today. If you didn't have anybody that came with you today, play with yourself on this one, all right? That's the way that's going to work because it's going to be creepy if you try to get somebody else to play. If you're playing at home, play along as well, okay? I'm going to show you two pictures side by side. You kind of come up with the differences. Here's the first picture up on the big screen. Look at those two pictures side by side. What differences do you see? Talk amongst yourself. I'll give you about 10 seconds to figure it out. What do you see? What's missing in one that's in the other and vice versa? Think you got it figured out? Let me show you the differences. Here they are. Did you get those? How many got the tie? Anybody get the tie? Oh, a whole bunch of you. How about the belt? Did you get the belt? Oh, you are a sharp group, I tell you what. How many got the apple? Anybody get the apple? No, a few less of you got the apple. Very nicely done. Let me show you another picture side by side. Same game. See if you can find the subtle differences. You ready? Here we go. Here it is. This one's a little bit harder Details a little bit greater, looking for differences between the two. Think you got it figured out? I'll give you all five more seconds. Three, two, one. Here they are. Here's the differences. Did you get the difference in chimney? How many got the difference in the chimney up there? Okay, a bunch of you got that one. Very good. How about the difference with a bicycle? They live in Albuquerque. The bicycle was stolen. That's the way that works. Well, make sure you got that one right there, okay? How many got the lines on the street? Everybody get the line? Nicely done, guys. You did really good. Well, that's what people try to teach us when it comes to world religions. They say that there's just little subtle differences that when you boil them all down, they basically say the same thing. But is that true? Of course, the answer is not. A better representation of what world religions teach, if we were to show you two different pictures, it would be these two different pictures. They're the direct opposite of each other. They don't say the same thing. We got a beach from, we got a very cold place. They're the opposite of each other. But you've all heard the analogy, haven't you, that God's up on a mountain? You've heard this, right? God's up on a mountain, and of course, there's many different ways that you can climb a mountain. There's many different trails to get to the top of the mountain. And as long as you're sincere, about the trail that you choose, then eventually you will get to the top of the mountain and you will worship the same God that everybody else worships as well. The only problem with that is Jesus said that wasn't true. 
In fact, Jesus said there's only one way, there's only one trail to get to the top of the mountain. And don't get upset with me for saying it. You can get upset with Jesus. Because this is what he said in John 14, verse 6. He said, I am the way. And I am the truth and I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. I don't think Jesus cared a whole lot about being politically correct. Do you? I think Jesus was basically saying there's only one way to have a right relationship with God. And that is through his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So here's the question we have to ask ourselves. Is there any evidence to back this up? I mean, can Jesus back up this claim that he's the only way, the only truth, and the only life, and no one gets to God the Father except through him? Well, let's look at that today. We're going to look at some world religions. And first, we're going to start off with the founders of the different world religions that we see. Let's start with Confucius for a second. Born around 550, 551 B.C., Confucius was this extraordinary communicator. Uh, he was a, had a strong core group of followers who followed him everywhere he went. He was more of a moral teacher with small little moral pithy sayings. He had a moral code that he believed society needed to live by, society needed to follow. He, he was married, uh, but his marriage didn't last very long. He ended up with, with a son and a daughter, but he got divorced somewhere along the way. He believed that his political reforms and his moral reforms would not be fully put into practice unless he won some kind of political office. And sure enough, he did. When he was 50 years old, he was the high official in Lu, and that's where he started his many moral reforms. And in the heyday of people following the ways and teachings of Confucius, it was about 350 million people strong. But today, only about 6 million people still follow the teachings of Confucius. So let's look at a bigger religion. Let's look at Buddhism. Buddhism. He was born around 560 B.C. in northeastern India. His name was actually the name you see on the screen. I never could figure out how to pronounce it. That's quite the name right there. I bet in kindergarten he was wishing his parents named him something a lot easier when he had to spell that name. Buddha was the son of a king, so he lived a life of extreme luxury. Well, when he got a little older, in his 20s, he decided to go on a quest for meaning and for purpose in his life. And so he left the palace behind, and what he saw absolutely shocked him, because he saw poverty, he saw disease, he saw sickness. He, he saw all kinds of terrible things. And I'll give credit to Buddha. Rather than going back to the palace and living a life of luxury for the rest of his days, he continued on his quest for meaning and purpose all the way until the day that he died. And his teachings right now impact about 350 million people on planet Earth. Let's talk about Muhammad next. Muhammad was born in Mecca in the Saudi Arabian Peninsula around 570 A.D. Now, he was orphaned around the age of six. And he traveled around in a caravan going from one place to another about the age of 25 was when he stopped doing that. Now, in all of his travels, going from town to town, he met lots of different people. And some of the people that Muhammad really enjoyed were Christians 
and were Jews. He had a lot of friends in the early days who were both Christian and who were also Jewish. Well, Muhammad fell in love with a woman who was a little bit older than him. It was a lady by about the age of 40. He was 25. She was 40 years old. And they got married. Now, this woman was extremely wealthy. And so as a result, Muhammad could live a life of luxury for all the days of his life. Well, many times he would go and he would meditate over into a cave. And he said that there would be some spirits that would meet him in the cave and he would begin to see visions. He would begin to get prophetic utterances from these spirits. And then he would come out from the cave and he would have scribes write down the things that these spirit beings had revealed to him. Now, in the early days, Muhammad thought that his new way of teaching, his new revelations, would be widely accepted by both Christians and by Jews. And so there's passages in the Quran because all of these little pithy sayings that Muhammad said it came out of these spirit encounters, they, they became the holy book of the Quran. Well, they thought that the Christians and the Jews would widely accept what the Quran was teaching. In fact, there's early passages of the Quran that speak of being friendly to Christians and Jews. Look at this, Surah chapter 5, verse 82 says, you will find that those who are nearest in love to the believers, to Muslims, are those who say we are Christians. Of course, Christians and Jewish folks rejected the teachings of Muhammad and that made him very, very angry. That made him very, very mad. And so you'll see later passages of scripture uh, of their scripture that, that state that uh, a, a, a Muslim should not be a friend with a Christian. Let me show you one particular passage. Surah chapter 2 verse 190 says, Fight in the way of Allah and slay the unbelievers wherever you find them and drive them out and fight them until religion is for Allah. Surah chapter 2, verses 65 and 66 refer to Jews as apes and swine to be despised and rejected. Now, you can be sure that the God of the Bible who chose the Jewish people to be his chosen race would not have someone else write something down like that. Well, it wasn't just the Jewish folks and the Christians who rejected the teachings of Muhammad. His own tribe rejected the teachings of Muhammad. And he headed to a place called Medina, and there he was received, and thus Islam began. This happened around 622 A.D. He had these visions, these spirit visions, for 23 years. And finally, his wife passed away. And then Muhammad had a new vision, that the great prophet could have as many wives as he wanted to have. And so he had 11 wives. Some scholars said he had up to 16 different wives. But in the Quran, it says that a Muslim man can only have up to four wives. Only the prophet can have an unlimited number of wives. Muhammad died around June 8th, uh, 632 at the age of 63. All right, let's talk about Jesus. Well, when was he born? Well, he was born right around zero. Um, Seems that time seems to be split in two by the birth of Jesus between B.C. 
and A.D. And we know that he was born in a little town of Bethlehem to a, a virgin by the name of Mary who was pledged to be married to a man by the name of Joseph. Now, here's what's interesting about the life of Jesus that makes him very much distinguishable compared to all the other world religions. See, all the other guys, the Buddha, Confucius, Muhammad, never claimed to be God. But Jesus did. They claim to be prophets. They claim to be spiritual advisors, spiritual leaders. But they never claim to be God. Only Jesus made that claim. And he makes a claim in more than one spot. John chapter 14, verse 9. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. John chapter 10, verse 30. I and the Father are one. So the question is, is can Jesus back up his claim to being God in the flesh? Well, if you were taking notes, you can write this one down. Jesus' character was flawless. Jesus never sinned. That cannot be said of Confucius. It cannot be said of Buddha. It cannot be said of Muhammad. Jesus was the one who claimed that he never sinned, and everybody around him backed up his claim. Look at what his friends said about him. This is 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter, who hung around Jesus for three, three and a half years, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. This is what he said about Jesus. He committed no sin. And no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Now, now think about this for a second. Your closest friend. Would they be able to say that you've never sinned? 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they're by your side. How much time would it take for them to realize that you're a sinner, sinner, chicken dinner? How long would it take them? Would it take them a couple hours? For some of you, it would take them a couple of minutes, right? If I ever get up here and say, I am without sin, just pull my wife aside, and she will clear up the, the debate at that point in time, right? I mean, who knows you better than your wife? Well, you say, oh, come on, Todd. course. His friends said this about him. Well, what did his enemies say about him? Well, Mark chapter 12, verse 14. Pharisees, the Sadducees says, Teacher, we know you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. They said, this is unlike anybody we've ever met before. This is a person who has a different agenda than anyone's ever had before. We can't find any fault in him. And trust me, you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're trying to find fault in Jesus. They're trying to put holes in his case that he is God in the flesh. And they aren't able to do it. They see Jesus as a threat to their power and to their position. And so they connive a scheme to have Jesus executed by death by crucifixion. But when a push came to shove and they talked about who Jesus is and what he stood for, they said, he is a man of integrity. Peter says, I can't find any fault in him at all. How about this one? Pontius Pilate. Right before Jesus dies, Pontius Pilate questions Jesus for several hours. What was his conclusion? He said, I can find no fault in this man. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says that Jesus was tempted in every way, yet was without sin. Never said a bad word after he stubbed his toe. That'd knock a bunch of you out right off the bat, wouldn't it? Never lied, never exaggerated, never stretched the truth, never looked lustfully at a person, never stole anything, not even something so small as a pencil. Sinless in every way. That kind of sets him apart, doesn't it? 
Jesus also performed miracles, didn't he? And that, that's a historical record. That's a historical fact. It's not said about Buddha. It's not said about Confucius. It's not said about Muhammad. None of those guys even said they could perform miracles. But Jesus did. Fed 5,000 men, not counting women and children, with five loaves of bread and two small fish. And then later on, he did this for 4,000 men, not counting women and children. Jesus walked on the water. He healed the blind, the deaf, the mute, the lame. My goodness, Jesus even had power over death, didn't he? There was a synagogue leader whose daughter had died, and Jesus went to the house and, and brought her back to life again. There was a woman who was mourning the death of her son, and there was a funeral processional going by, and Jesus stumbled upon the funeral processional and raised the boy back to life again. And let's not forget about Lazarus. Lazarus had been dead for four days. Jesus shows up in Mary and Martha's house and says, hey, where have you laid him? And they said, well, he's been dead for four days. And he said, well, show me where the spot is. And then he says, well, roll the stone away from the tomb's entrance. And Martha, whose last name could have been Stuart, said, listen, it stinks right now, Jesus. He's been dead for four days. And Jesus said, roll it away. And then he said, Lazarus, come forth. I believe with all my heart, if Jesus hadn't been specific about who he was bringing forth, the entire cemetery would have come forth. And out came Lazarus in his grave clothes. Who, who, who do you know has the power of life and who has the power of death? Who do you know has the power over the seas? There'd be a storm that would blow up and Jesus would say, be still. And the storm clouds would dissipate. They would go away. That didn't happen for Muhammad. Didn't happen for Buddha. Didn't happen for Confucius. Jesus kind of sets himself apart, doesn't he? So what do these world religions teach? Well, let's go back over to the big board for just a second. Uh, first thing is this, is that Christians teach that Jesus was God in the flesh and that he died on the cross paying the price for our sins. That's what, that's what we teach, right? Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin. He's the sacrificial lamb of God who dies on our behalf for our sin, for our shame. And it's through the precious blood of Jesus that we have new life, that we have new hope, that we've been made right with God. But here's what's interesting. Islam denies that Jesus was God. Islam, as far as they'll go, is they'll say he was a prophet who performed miracles. And they say that Jesus never died on a cross. I don't know if you know that or not. That Jesus never died for the sins of all mankind. No, Jesus never even tasted death, according to the Islamic faith. Jesus just descended to the, to the clouds. And one day, according to Islam, Jesus is going to return again. And he's going to break down all of the crosses that led so many people astray. He's going to profess his faith in the Muslim faith. He's going to get married. He's going to rule on the earth for 40 years, and then he's going to, and he's going to die. That, does that sound like the, those two things sound like the same thing to you? How about this? Buddhists believe in reincarnation. Uh, 547 reincarnations. You got to come back 500 and 47 times, and then if you eliminate desire from your life, eventually you will reach a state where they consider you a Buddha, and you go to this place called Nirvana. And I'm not talking about the band, okay? Now let me ask you a question. Anybody here want to do middle school 547 times? Any, 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 anybody want to come back as a fly that eats horse manure? Anybody? Any? Any? 
no, 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 there's, no, there's no takers, is there? There's a big difference in how we view salvation. Let, let me show you. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. It says, for it's by grace you've been saved. Through faith, and this isn't of yourself, it's the gift of God. Not by works, so no one can boast. It, it's, it's, a, it's unfortunate, isn't it? You stop the typical person on the street and say, how do you know you're going to heaven when you die? And they say, I'm a good person. But the Bible says you can't be good enough. It's not by works. What's the most familiar, uh, most loved song in all of Christianity? It's amazing grace. If we could just get our mind wrapped around it, God's amazing grace. That God does not treat us as we deserve, but God treats us better than we deserve. We don't go to heaven based on anything we've done. We go to heaven based on what he did for us. That's what we teach. That's what the Bible teaches. You can't do enough good things. We do good things as a Christian, but not to earn our salvation, but to show our love for him. Islam has five pillars of faith that you've got to do. This is one of the many works-based religions that are out there. You've got to work and work and work and work and work and try your very hardest to get to the highest, you know, to get to that place of heaven. Here's the five pillars of Islam. You have to have a declaration of faith. You have to pray facing Mecca five times a day. You have to give 2% of your income to help the poor. You have to fast during the month of Ramadan. And you have to take a pilgrimage to Mecca at least once during a person's life. So if you work really hard and you do all these things and then you die, there's a chance. A chance that you might go to heaven. But you never know how Allah's going to feel on that particular day. If he's ticked off, if something's upset him, he might not allow you to come in. In fact, there's only one way for certain that you can get here. And that is if you die in a holy war. This is what the Quran says. If you're killed or die in the way of Allah, forgiveness and mercy from Allah are far better than all that others may amass of worldly wealth. So the only way a Muslim can be certain that they're going to go to heaven when they die is if they die in a holy war sanctioned by the Muslim faith. And that's why they'll strap on a bomb and blow themselves up. Let's talk about heaven for just a second. Buddhists say that the way to enlightenment is through an eightfold path that he has. I won't go into it right now. And if you do this eightfold path and you eliminate all desire, then again, you reach a state called nirvana. Now, it's interesting, for the Muslim faith, their idea of heaven is not necessarily a place where you worship God, but it's a place where you have every one of your sexual fantasies, if you're a man, fulfilled. You, you die, and Allah allows you into that heaven. According to Al-Ghazel, one of Islam's greatest teachers, he says, when a martyr reaches paradise, he'll receive 500 companions, 4,000 virgins, and 8,000 divorced women. Does that sound like heaven to anybody? I mean, I'm married to one woman. It's enough. You see what I'm saying? It's the craziest thing right there. If you're a woman in the Islamic faith, well, you get to be a sex slave for all eternity. That, that's as good as it gets for you. And I won't say any more about that. What's heaven for a Christian? It's a place where we worship God. 
It's a place where our faith becomes sight. We see Jesus. What a day that will be. Going to a place where there's no more sin or suffering or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. For behold, our God has made everything new again. And we'll be reunited with those who have gone on before us who love Jesus. And my favorite part of heaven is we'll never say goodbye again. You'll never feel the heartache of being separated from your loved ones, being feeling like you're separated from God. He'll always be with you. He will be our God and we will be his people and we will worship him forever and ever and ever. And he'll have things for us to do. He's got a plan. He's got a purpose. He isn't done. He hasn't revealed what that all is. But I can tell you this, you're not going to be floating around on clouds eating bonbons and Fritos. I can tell you that right now. He's got things for us to accomplish. He's got things for us to do. One more thing that I, I almost forgot. Jesus is the only one who rose again from the dead. Buddha didn't, Confucius didn't, Muhammad didn't. You don't believe me, you can get on a plane if you like and you can go to their tombs. And everybody agrees that they're still in the ground. Their bones are rotten away in the ground. They're holy sites. They never claimed to conquer death and the grave. They never claimed to break the pain of the chain of sin that so easily binds us down. No, there's only one who rose again from the dead, isn't there? Jesus did. But it didn't look so good for a while, did it? Because they took him and they beat him. And friends, when I say they beat him, they beat him beyond recognition. They spit on him and they mocked him. They ripped out his beard. They punched him again and again. Then they stripped him naked and they tied him to a pole and they whipped him with a whip. And then they made him carry his cross to Golgotha, the place of the skull. And there, nine-inch nails were placed into his hands and his feet. And for six hours one Friday, Jesus hung there, trying to gasp for a breath by pushing up on the nail that was in his feet. And after six hours, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he died. And just to make certain that he was dead, they took a spear and they shoved it into his side and they pierced his heart and blood and water flowed. If you were there that day, you'd say he was dead. And like the disciples, you probably would have gone home a little bit disillusioned and a whole lot disappointed. You'd probably be eating nighttime supper, talking to your family and friends, going, well, I guess he was just another wannabe Messiah. Just another guy who made big claims and big boasts, but he couldn't back it up with, the, with his life. He's dead now. It's over. But on that third day, something significant happened, didn't it? Stone was rolled away, and Jesus walked out of that grave. And when they got there, there were angels, weren't there? The disciples saw. And they asked the question, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He's risen, just as he said. And another day in time, I'll give you all the evidence that surrounds that. But it's well documented. It's never been disproven. Jesus rose again, conquering sin, death, and the grave. And there's not another world religious leader that can say that. So he kind of sets himself apart, doesn't he? Now, some of you are sitting here. Some of you are tuned in at home. And you're like, Ooh, I don't even know if we should be talking about this. I mean, Todd, I don't think this has been a very tolerant talk at all. I mean, we're talking about very exclusive language here. And we, we shouldn't be so exclusive, you know. This is kind of offensive, you know, if you think about it. 
That's, that's the problem with our world today. We, we, we've gotten so tolerant that we can't share truth without getting beat up for it. I was reading uh, by James Emery White, and, and he said this. He said there's two different kinds of tolerance in our world today. The first kind of tolerance is called social tolerance or cultural tolerance. This is accepting someone else as who they are regardless of what they believe. Now, the Bible doesn't have any problem with this kind of tolerance. In fact, Jesus tells us that's how tolerant we should be, that we should love other people even when they don't believe the same things we believe, that we should care about people who have different belief systems, different political systems. We should care about all those folks. In fact, Jesus taught us to do unto others as as we like them to do to us, right? So there's nothing wrong with having someone who's in your sphere of influence who believes something different, thinks something different. You should love them, you should care for them, and you should accept them. The Bible would say that's absolutely right. But there's a second kind of tolerance that's raised its ugly head in our society today that's really mucking everything up, to be honest with you. And that's what we call intellectual tolerance. This is accepting what someone believes is right regardless of what you believe or think is right because you don't want to upset the other person. Now, this is where Jesus would say no. We draw the line here. See, here's what's interesting. The Bible teaches that there is a right and there is a wrong. There is a true and there is a false. And in the public arena, Christians must always stand for what is true. And we should share the truth with gentleness and with respect. But we don't have to remove ourselves from the political world or from the social world where these issues are being addressed. We don't have to remove ourselves from that just to appease everybody else. Because we believe there's a right and we believe that there's a wrong. Let me try to illustrate this so it makes a little more sense to you. Let's say you got a friend of yours and he comes up to you and he says, Listen, I believe that to get the best performance out of your car, we should put sand in its gas tank. Okay, that's, it. that's, that's his belief, right? Well, if you're going to be tolerant of that person, you might say, well, you know, I, 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 I can't argue with you on that because I'm going to be tolerant of your views and I don't want to upset you and make you, so I guess we'll put sand in my gas tank. You realize how stupid that is right now? No, 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 you, you can be tolerant of somebody else's belief without buying into their belief or, or de- degrading that person for their belief. So let's say I got a neighbor, he comes over, he says, hey, Todd, I think the best way to get the highest performance in your truck is to put sand into it. And I'd say, listen, I appreciate you, man. You know I love you. You're awesome. You're great. We'll always be friends, but we're not doing that. (laughs) See, your belief is that's going to improve your vehicle. And I say, you go for it. It's your car. You paid for it. Put all the sand in your gas tank that you want to. But we're not putting any sand in my gas tank. Now, I'm not being intolerant for saying that to him, you see. Because there's a right and there's a wrong, right? And so it's okay for me to say, hey, for me and my family, we're not putting sand in our gas tank. Let me explain it this way to you. Let's put it up on the big board. A person can hold to the value that other people have a right to their beliefs, without believing that all points of view are equally valid. Let me say that again, because that was really good. Think about this. A person can hold to the value that other people have a right to their beliefs. Everybody's got a right to their beliefs. 
If you don't believe that Jesus is, is the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through him, that's up to you. That's your belief. I don't, you can have that belief. I'll love you. I'll pray for you. We can have these people have the right to have their beliefs without believing that all points of view are equally valid. Hey, if you don't believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and life, that's fine. But I'm going to share that Jesus is. Because the truth demands that I share it. Let me give you another illustration. you got a friend of yours. He's blind. And you've decided to go hiking on the side of a mountain. Why? I don't know, but that's what you've decided to do. And he's kind of stuck. And he's not sure what step to take. So he turns to you and says, is there a right way to go? And you being the great friend you are say, listen, I don't want to impose my beliefs on you as to which way is the right way to go. You laughed. It's ridiculous, isn't it? No, you know that he's one step away from dying. And so truth demands that you share this is the way to go. When Peter said in Acts chapter 4 to the Sanhedrin, it is by the name of Jesus Christ that salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. He wasn't being intolerant of anybody else's belief system. He wasn't making someone feel like they were less than or, or making that person not feel like they were accepted. He was simply sharing the truth. And the truth has to be shared. Now, let me, let me share one more thing with you before I get done here. Um, if there's many ways to get to God, and if all religions basically say the same thing, can you explain to me then why God sends his son to die such a horrific death? I mean, if you can save yourself by being good, if you can save yourself through the five pillars of Islam, if you can save yourself through the eightfold plan of getting rid of desire in your life that the Buddhists do, if you can adhere to the Confucius moral teachings, that those ways will get you to, the, to God eventually because you're sincere. Then why does God kill his only son? And he doesn't kill him fast, does he? He kills him slow. Why does he do it? Because he's the way and the truth and the life. And nobody comes to God the Father except through him. We owe a sin debt. A sin debt is so great that there's no way we can pay for it ourselves. And God saw the mess we were in. He sends his son. Jesus lives a perfect, sinless life and dies on the cross, rises again from the dead. And if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Because Jesus said, I'm the way and the truth and the life. And there is no other way to have a right relationship with God except through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Believe it or not. Let's pray. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I know you're the way, the truth, and the life. I know you are. You have filled the emptiness inside of me. You, you reached into my lonely world. You took my sin and you threw it as far as the east is from the west. You are the only one who conquered death in the grave. You're the only one who has power over nature, power over sickness. You're the only one that can perform miracles. And we've all seen it. 
How many prayers have you answered? How many times have you come through for us at just the right time and just the right moment? Lord, the world we live in today, they want to silence us, call us intolerant. But there's nothing wrong with sharing truth when done so with gentleness and respect. So, Lord, you've called us to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. Help us to shine for you. Help us to always bring spice to life. And Lord, the way we live our life and the way we love others, may people see the difference that you've made in our life. Lord, for friends who are here today or watching from home, and they thought all religions basically teach the same thing, and their eyes have been opened up to how distinctive you are and how there's just one way. I mean, your son proclaimed that there is a wide road that leads to destruction, but a narrow path that leads to eternal life. Lord, I pray that they've had an aha moment. And today would be the day of their salvation. Today would be the day they would trust you to be the leader and forgiver of their life. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.